Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Sports Science and Strength and Conditioning at Nottingham Forest Football Club, Ross Burberry. Welcome to episode 7 of the Pace Performance Podcast. Today I have got Head of Sports Science and Strength and Conditioning at Nottingham Forest, Ross Burberry. Uh, just before we get going, I just want to say, uh, if you do listen to the podcast and you think it's you think it's any good, just um, be very, very kind and give us a, a retweet or a, a favourite on Twitter just to get the, um, get the good information out there, if you think it is good. Um, but yeah, let's welcome Ross. So, hi Ross. How are you doing, you okay, mate? I'm well, mate, yeah. So, I got to know Ross um, when I first went back to Doncaster. Um, so, I was kind of loose, since the term, interning, um, shadowing, shadowing Ross at Doncaster. Um, so, we've known each other since probably 2010. Um, so I just wanted to get, get Ross on because obviously we've kept in touch since and Ross has moved on to Nottingham, various places, um, and now at Nottingham Forest, but just wanted to talk about, um, injury prevention strategies, um, mainly in, in this podcast. Um, so first of all, do you want to give us a little bit of information on who you are, you know, your background, what your current role is? Yeah, of course. Um, my kind of role started at Nottingham a couple of years ago. Um, got brought in under Sean Driscoll, currently doing uh, pre-season down at Crawley Town, but got the call up to, to move back up north, which is good to the Sheffield lad anyway, so, you know, closer to home. Uh, with all due respect to Crawley, who have been fantastic within the years, of getting promoted year after year, you know, Nottingham Forest came calling and can't really turn down tunes like that. Um, so I spent a couple of years at Nottingham Forest. Uh, prior to there, been at Sheffield Wednesday's Academy, uh, been at Doncaster Rovers in the Championship era, um, and then um, did well to get Hereford relegated out of the Football League. <laughs> nice. Um, me and Richard O'Kelly went down there um, back end of the season, I think 2011, I think it was. Um, might, no, it might have been 2000, yeah, 2011, 2012 season. I went to the back end of 2000, uh, excuse me, 2012. Um, and yeah, just we had a we had a good little push towards the end to try and help out manager Jamie Pittman back then, but fortunately things didn't work out. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's basically me within terms of football. Um, a few bits and bobs outside, as everyone always does. Um, played ice hockey to uh, a reasonable level, so obviously kept my toe in there and helped out with the strength conditioning side at Sheffield. Um, and then just do a little bit. Uh, speaking to other people regards to nutrition and stuff. So, uh, yeah, majority of football, really, but little bits here and there. I mean, we talked, when I said about head of sports science and strength and conditioning, we talked before about the kind of nonsense about people's job titles <laughs> encompassing that they run the world. But what does your, um, what's your current role at Nottingham Forest, what does it encompass in a, in a little shop? Brief uh, I, I've always had issues with um, a one-man kind of one-size-fits-all kind of sports scientist, strength conditioning coach. Um, you see one man come in as a as a fitness coach to a football club and just kind of expected to take on everything from 
nutrition, fitness, sports science, S and C, physiology. You know, it's it's not a sports scientist. It's more of a belief, sports generalist. <laughs> um, so. With regards to my role at Nottingham, the last two years we've just been getting really heavily involved uh, with the sports science and medical discipline together. I think it's imperative that a good club has to have that kind of crossover and that affiliation between the two departments. Um, but as of next season, we're making sure that we've got a sports scientist pitch-based and a separate sports scientist gym-based um, every day just because we need to make sure that every player has that support uh, needed. Um, so we're, we're trying to come away from the general role of a sports scientist and make sure that we can get support to every single player no matter what area of the pitch or gym or wherever they are on a certain day. So my role really is just to oversee that and make sure that we are offering that support through sports science, through strength and conditioning, um, but kind of not spreading ourselves too thin and making sure that we can give that support in those two areas. I mean, it's it's been obviously a couple of years since we uh, worked together, but so how how has your kind of injury prevention strategies kicked on from, like say, 2010 when you're at Doncaster? Um, and what kind of things have you implemented at Forest or before or just generally? Well, injury prevention is such a massive, massive kind of topic. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's quite a vague topic. Mm. Um, ever since the FIFA 11 first came out, and, you know, everyone should be doing these type of exercises to prevent injury. But I think the big thing for me is that I look back to when I was at Doncaster when I first started there in 2008. Um, and coming from kind of an ice hockey background, all I tried to do was just say, right, let's let's go low, mm. let's have some some reasonable load on the lads, make sure they can do some big, powerful strength moves because that was what the manager wanted. He wanted big, strong players for the championship because, with all due respect, at that time of the season when they first came up, they kind of played the way out of League One, but they were boys against men in the championship. So we had players like Paul Heffernan, James Hayter. Gareth Roberts, Billy Sharp in the later area, um, who just kind of really benefited from doing heavy strength exercises, you know, good amounts of plyometric work. But obviously that was just a bit naive of me in the sense to think that's all we needed to do to keep them fit, keep them healthy and make sure they could perform on a Saturday. So as a practitioner, you know, you develop yourself over the years, you do the research, you go and speak to people and do CPD and everything. Um, and the way that I've evolved as a practitioner now, I like to think that I've become a lot more developed within myself. So you look at, you know, types of injuries that are within football these days, the most prevalent ones, uh, you know, typical hamstrings and uh, normally ACL type knee injuries. Um, you know, you look at X strand and that's, uh, within his studies, that that's across the board. You know, not just within this country. It's uh, you know throughout UEFA. So, I think when we approach injury prevention from that perspective, it needs to be um, what are our players doing holistically within turning up to training. It's not just about what they're doing as a pre-activation or their own individual prehab. You know, what what they're doing out there on the pitch. So. It's all right saying, you know, uh, hamstring injuries, for example, we'll get in there and we'll do Nordics for fun in the gym before we go out and this, that, the other. But you, you look at a Nordic 
and you think, right, okay, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing an audit? Let's break it down. And you look at the majority of hamstring injuries occur in the bicep fan, whether it's, you know, at the top or the bottom of the muscle. Um, are our Nordics targeting bicep fan? So th there's a bit of research out there now to look at a Nordic fall uh, and assess the EMG activity of a Nordic fall. You're not actually recruiting optimal amounts of bicep fem that replicate high-intensity running until the terminal stages of the fall. And I don't know about any other practitioners, but most of my lads at the club, they can't get anywhere near the floor in a Nordic fall. They'll have a break kind of halfway through. So if you are going to use a Nordic fall, it's little things like that that need to be recognised within the gym rather than just saying a Nordic fall targets hamstrings, we're going to prevent injuries to the hamstring. Um, so modifications need to be made with all your gym exercises. Um, but within a sense like that, how do we make these modifications suitable if you haven't got, you know, the, the, um, the pleasures of going across and doing EMG stuff, um, within a lab. So I think the other thing to turn to is, is looking at how things operate on field. So within hamstring injuries, we need to make sure the hamstring stays healthy. So out there on the field, we have to expose our players to regular doses of speed within probably 10% of their maximum speed. So making sure they're hitting about 90% on a regular basis. So if you look at a centre-half, and we can all argue till the cows come home that a centre-half doesn't need to reach those top-end speeds because he doesn't in a game. But we'll hang about, he still needs to make sure he keeps those hamstrings healthy and on the off chance that he does make that run to the corner or a box to box on the way back if it goes up for a header or whatever from across. So what we do is um, one day a week, we have speed days. And on our speed days, we get the real-time GPS out and we sit on the side of the pitch. And we work in big areas. We have a chapter management portal about and we work in larger areas to make sure we can expose our players to that speed. Um, and if the players don't hit, within 10% of their maximum speed out there on the pitch, then we do some uh, 30 meter sprints. Um, we have to make sure that we do our 30 meter sprints either on a continued surface within, let's say, uh, an AstroTurf, so we, we keep on getting the regular exposure to the same ground reaction force, or we just know where the firmer areas of the pitch are, um, so we're getting that kind of same ground reaction coming back out of the floor as to what we're putting in it. So we are training the muscle as well as the joint um, as opposed to getting them on soft, sludgy areas which aren't going to help get the players to their maximum speed. Um, the, the reason we do that is some debate is to say whether hamstring injuries occur on the kind of terminal extension of the running gate or if it occurs upon heel strike on the floor. So with that in mind, we just have to make sure that we cover both bases, because I don't know the answer to that question. So I've just got to make sure that we get the same ground reaction forces coming up the hard ground, and we make sure that we get that massive hip separation uh, working on maximum speed. So I mean, that's that's for me in kind of hamstrings and how we, we look at those. Uh, we make sure we keep modified exercises in the gym that will target the hamstring on the bicep them as much as possible. Um, and we also make sure we get plenty of speed out there on certain days on a periodized week. Um, but then the other one for me is, is knees. So, you know, we look at the knees and I was just talking there about working on, 
on firm surfaces and hard hard training pitches to get to that high speed. But the one thing you have got to be aware of is if you are training on firm pitches and hard pitches, then there's going to be a, a big kind of tenderness reaction, um, so a heavy tendon dose response, I suppose, um, on the joint when you're training on firm pitches throughout the week. So if you kind of draw a scale in your mind of a, a 1 to 10, um, and a 1 being a, a really soft pitch and a 10 being a really hard pitch, then you've got to make sure you understand that on the hard pitch, you're going to get a very, very strong joint stimulus, so a lot of joint fatigue. And then on the 1 where you're working on a really soft pitch, you're going to get a very strong kind of muscular fatigue. Um, so when you're looking at training the knee out there on the training pitch, it might be beneficial to do your small area work, possibly on your softer areas. And the reason I'm saying that is that you look at the ACL injury occurrence on hard ground where the boot can stick and you don't get that slide and you can go into excessive knee valgus not going to get that in softer areas because there's more give. So one thing you've got to look at there is that if you're going to do your strength days, those smaller area work on soft pitches, you're going to get a very, very strong muscular stimulus, therefore a lot of muscular fatigue. Um, but that does then go on to protect the knee. So it, it's all about getting that periodized kind of uh, field intervention, I think, when it comes to, period, uh, it comes to injury prevention. Um, but then looking at the, the knee within a gym setting, um, you know, ACL injuries uh, are probably most common in um, instances of fatigue. So you've got to make sure that you're preparing the knee to go out there on your strength day adequately in the gym. So making sure that the hips are nice and mobile, you can work a lot of pelvic kind of gluteal stability. Um, teach leg stiffness, co-contraction, you know, you can you build nodes, your Darcy Nolan type work, um, and just make sure that the, the legs are strong enough and reactivated to go out there on a soft pitch. Um, I know I kind of waffled a little bit there and went from one subject to another, but I think, you know, knees and hamstrings are the most prevalent in, in football for us, so we've got to make sure that we get the gym and field scenarios right. So we have adequate gym programming and adequate periodization for football training. The only area that I was going to jump in there was when I thought you were just going to smash centre-halves and say they were slow and whatnot. <laughs> I, had to, I had to jump in there and defend it, but that's, you, you brushed past that. I liked it. I'll, I'll tell you now, Faith, <laughs> that our centre-halves are probably the fastest players we have. Really? Uh, and they really, really buy into the kind of hamstring runs that we do because yeah. they understand the... Uh, the need for keeping the hamstrings healthy and making sure they can get to those kind of maximum speeds within a game if needed, uh, if needed be. So, yeah, I, I completely understand, mate, you've been sent to ask yourself, but uh, it's one of those things where as long as we get a good buy-in and the players understand the reasons why we're doing things with them, then we've got good enough pros and, uh, yeah, they, uh, they look after themselves. I can safely say that centre half, this centre half was not the fastest at where we played. <laughs> Certainly not. But yeah, I mean, you've you've come from it kind of a, a general sense with um, like hamstring hamstrings and knees being most prominent in football. When it comes to kind of individual differences, is there any kind of um, I know obviously FMS 
um, has become really popular. Um, is there anything like that that you use to kind of screen the players to get more data on a kind of individual basis? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of the FMS uh, from Great Cup, mm-hmm. and I'm not really a fan of people modifying that same FMS. Mm. Just for reasons of, uh, for example, let's say the inline lunge that you do with a stick down your back. Mm. I'm, I'm so much more comfortable doing it with a stick down my back because I, I can push the stick into my back and get some kind of support from it mm. as opposed to doing it without the stick. So there's little things like that that you can kind of manipulate the, the screen as an athlete. Um, but for me, I, I've got to know what type of athlete I'm working with. Is he a tall athlete? Is he small? What type of um, player is he? What position does he play? Is he explosive? Is he, uh, you know, a mesomorph, ectomorph? You know, all, all sorts of different scenarios. But I think the, the one thing that we do at Forest is that we make sure that everything's individualized. That's probably most people do these days with regards to their um, injury history, their fitness screening and testing. So we have uh, a battery of tests that we use on players on a regular basis, um, a couple of them even on a weekly basis. Um, and if they're not achieving on those what we'd like them to be, or if we feel that they're dropping off um, from a good market, then we've got certain interventions that we give to those players on an individual perspective. And like I said earlier, we've got um, uh, a pitch-based sports scientist and a gym-based sports scientist. I mentioned to you before we start the podcast. Mm. Um, and I just think we're covering both bases there. So I feel there's a need to cover both bases and the player gets that, that ultimate support that we can give them across from an individual perspective. So answering your question on, on functional movement screens, we don't use a functional movement screen, but we do have our own battery of tests uh, that we administer and we strive individual programs from that. So, have you ever used FMS and you've kind of moved away from it, or have you always been a kind of not really having that at all? I've, I've never really had it at all, mate, to be honest. I've seen other people use it. Um, and I know there's a lot of papers and research out there saying that the uh, kind of intertester reliability is, is quite significant. So, if I would do a screen and you would do a screen, we'd come up with the same results. Mm. But it, it's all subjective, there's nothing objective for me. Um, within the FMS and I think as a sports scientist I work with numbers um, I talk with players and I get wellness scores and things like that and then I understand where they're coming from on an emotional basis which I think is very very important mm-hmm. but working with footballers that's not always going to be accurate um, footballers are quite emotional people with um, a day to day change in the behaviour and personality and I think you have to get objective measures of analysing the player's performance to, to get the correct uh, interventions into place. So looking at a functional movement screen um, from afar, from other people using it, I can see why they, why they use it and they might have big belief in it, and that's fine. But for me, I'd like to be more objective in my, uh, in my prescriptions to players. So when going through the years... Is there anything that you've kind of you, you introduced, say back at back at Doncaster, that's kind of phased out, moving away from the kind of FMS um, that you've thought, nah, that's that's not really worked for me, or you know you've kind of introduced something else to take its place. Is there anything that's kind of evolved 
let's say? Um, I, I think the big thing for me is load monitoring. Okay. I think um, coming from a, an ice hockey background, which is probably quite similar to rugby in a sense, but not, not as well developed as rugby, um, it, it's all about kind of always wanting to do more and always wanting to make sure that you're the best and you're, you're better than everyone else and you spend more hours in the gym and more hours on the training pitch or on the ice as we work. Um, and, and that's that's not professional football. Um, and that's something that I went into football thinking, you know, why are these lads leaving the club at one, two o'clock in the afternoon and you know, that they're not really kind of putting in the hours that they should be putting in to get their best performance out of themselves. But then when you realise it's not about doing more in the week to make the weekend game easier. It's about getting the week right to make sure that we can perform about our best on a Saturday. And if sometimes that does mean, you know, the lads get away early or something like that, then that that's fine. And that's something I've kind of come to terms with now. Uh, and I appreciate because of the rigours of the season, you get a cumulative effect of the team. So when I first came into Doncaster, I was, let's do more, 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 more. Um, and the manager was a big believer in that as well. He kind of liked his long training sessions to make sure we were prepping right for the weekend. But I think as, as anyone, you're always going to evolve and you're always going to change your beliefs or maybe not change them, but adapt them uh, along the way. Um, so for me, I think not my flop as such, but my, my big kind of learning area was just putting load monitoring into perspective. So whether that being started off as subjective at Doncaster, which we didn't have heart rates, so typical RPEs. Um, and I think there's a there's a paper out there now about RPE load and an injury occurrence of hitting so many arbitrary units of, of whatever. But I, I'll put that on my Twitter. I'll, I'll give my Twitter and I'll put that on there when I find the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but then going on to heart rate analysis and then realising that heart rate isn't the all and end all and it can't give you um, kind of as accurate markers of a training session as what you'd like when you work in bigger areas and small areas and you know you think that was a really hard training session but you don't get the same heart rate response to what you think you should have um, and then now moving on to, to GPS and working very very closely with stat sports I think my process of evolving from flop uh, to where I am now is uh, you know is quite uh, it's quite dramatic um so yeah as a as a practitioner i think my flop as such was just making sure that we get the week right throughout the season um and the load monitoring side of things is uh, is is imperative really as a sports scientist i mean when it, from my experience back at back at doncaster i mean the guy that replaced replaced you when you left um him and the, and the new physio kind of were, were all into the, the FMS, which kind of filtered down to the youth team. And it was a bit like the first team are doing it, you know, no matter the situation, we've got to get involved in it. So it was kind of it was kind of given to us um, as a kind of necessity, really. Uh, and just come on to the next thing. I kind of took that a bit literally. So kind of it was it was all kind of correct. Not all, but we'd have specific sessions for kind of corrective work, depending on. Um, FMS results, yeah. but then thought, hold on a minute, we're, we're we're kind of we're not wasting time, but this time could be used a lot better. So that the, the corrective work was introduced into strength sessions, power sessions. Um, 
but that kind of individual work that you do with the lads is it is it separate is it is it on a morning is it is it integrated within the rest periods of you know a strength and power session you know how do you how do you work that into your into your program gym work in in like not obviously not on the field but within the gym environment what we do at the minute is that we have individual programs for uh for every player which is performed minimum twice a week but that's it's a difficult thing for us to say, you know, I have to do a program twice a week because the amount of games you play in the championship is ridiculous at times. Mm. The amount of Tuesday, Saturday weeks that you get, um, you kind of you kind of say, right, just try and get it as and when and do it when you feel you can. You know, you put the, the ownership to the player and you empower the player uh, to do the work himself rather than policing it and looking over people's shoulders and no, don't get me wrong, we, we do monitor it, we have checklists of, of when players have done certain amounts of work, but I think you've got to empower the player um, to do their individual programs, whether that's before training, whether that's after training, that's fine. Um, you, you empower the player, but the thing for me, what we always do is we um, have three different uh, pre-activation groups in a morning before training. So the group uh, I take might consist of players that are weak within the posterior chain and um, really struggle to get, you know, strong hip separation uh, and leg stiffness, for example. The other group might be weak on anterior chain flexibility, uh, leg strength and uh, gluteal core work, for example, something like that. So if a player doesn't do his prehab, uh, his individual program, um, before he goes out to training, we kind of cover the base anyway, and we give them really low-level remedial-type work uh, as a pre-activation before they go out on the grass. Um, the one thing we do do that's away from individualising is we make sure we give players um, some kind of strength exposure, some heavy knee, uh, almost kind of cons guard, slow, heavy resistance training to the knee. Um, and that's just in a supine leg press. So, you know, this, there's a paper that's about to be published, I think, um, in June, I think it's by um, Lawerson uh, et al. And it's just about identifying what is the best method of um, gym work that reduces injuries. And they're just saying, that, you know, out of the meta-analysis that they've done, it's, uh, it's strength work. I'm just making sure you get heavy strength work into your players, and that's going to give you the best injury prevention. So I think we, we, we do cover things on an individual basis, and that's our priority at Nottingham. But then we also make sure that we do cover other bases if players cannot get those gym sessions in, their individual sessions that they, uh, that they need to be doing for whatever reason. Mm. So you were back, back in 2010 when you were sticking some lard on the back of the players. Weren't too, yeah. weren't too far off. But it, without the... Kind of within the within the madness, there was there's some obviously some benefit which you obviously come back to now. Yeah, I mean, I I, I quite I'm a big fan of squatting, um, but I appreciate the fact that you have to make sure a player is technically good to squat. Mm. Um, can he actually load? Can he form the squat a bilateral squat without any kind of pelvic or hip issues? Has he always got um, a deficiency? from left to right side, that's going to stop them doing a bilateral movement. These are the things that 
probably didn't identify that well at Doncastershire before. Um, we just said, right, let, let's put some load on and start start moving some weight. This was this wasn't always a squat, you know. Yeah. Um, a lot of kind of deadlifting, a lot of bench pressing, you know. You're really kind of bodybuilding type work, which you know isn't a bad thing. It just doesn't sound very attractive to a modern day sports scientist. Mm. But you understand the reasons for putting load on the players and moving some load and some heavy slow loads. Um, so although it doesn't sound very attractive, it, it probably did what we needed it to do at the time. So you mentioned right at the start about working with physios. How yes. it sounds like you work really closely with them. Is that is is that right? Yeah, we, we've got uh, we're lucky enough to have three physios within the first team at Forest. Um, obviously, the head physio and then the two other physios are a rehab physio and a performance physio, right. which basically means performances. He does all the grass-based rehab, uh, and the rehab physio is the gym-based uh, physio. So. What we've got there is we make sure a sports scientist is out there with the pitch-based physio and uh, we have a sports scientist, strength conditioning coach within the gym on the rehab-based physio. Um, and I think you have to have that affiliation. It's um, sports science and medicine. There has to be uh, not just an element of crossover. Every single day is, is so much crossover. We have to make sure that we're working together very closely as a tight-knit unit. Um, and we, we all sing from the same hymn sheet. You know, so if I was to go into the gym and say, right, um, Jack Hobbs, centre-half, he needs to be squatting one and a half, two times body weight. And then the physio turns around to me and goes, well, he's got, you know, load-compromised issues. He can't squat that much. And then we start having a row about, he should do this, he shouldn't do that. You know, that that's not going to help. So we understand that. We have certain needs as sports scientists, S&C coaches, but then on the flip side, we also realise that medical guys have got their own needs as well. So I think having an understanding of what we're both trying to get out of it, because you know we're both pissing in the same part, and we're all trying to do it for the right reasons, mm-hmm. not to be bigger and cleverer than the next man, but to get the best performance out of the athlete. So we, we've got a very, very strong relationship uh, within the two departments, if you want to call it two departments, because I see it as just one. Mm. Um, and I think having that kind of work together is is imperative. It really, really is. Um, and also, you know, the, the kind of pathways, um, progressions to training, to running, to uh, performing in games from an injured perspective, you know, we're there to give the information to the physios on their GPS. Have they hit a certain percentage of their match uh, performance? Have they gradually rebuilt themselves to get back into training where we're not going to see an element of breaking down or a recurrence of the same injury? Um, so there's, there's a massive, massive communication between the two. And, you know, unless you, unless you can't already tell I'm very passionate about this and we have to make sure that we're working together. If a physio and a sports scientist doesn't work together, you'll probably find yourself with a lot of injuries and uh, a team that won't probably do well in the league as well. Because, I mean, traditionally, it has been a bit of a locked horns job. Not not with yourself, obviously, but just, you know, the, the kind of like power struggle a little bit between the two. You know, yeah, one I think to, yeah. the issue that you've got normally is that a physio will always be at the club. 
he will be kind of, um, you know, part of the furniture at a football club. And predominantly a sports scientist or a fitness coach will be brought in with a manager. Mm. Um, so you've got that kind of tribal, um, kind of dominance going off where the physios, this is my territory. I've been here the longest. And then you've got the fitness coach that's going, well, the manager's brought me on more important one. And you just think to yourself, look, it, it's just a battle of egos, I think, in most senses. And I'm being quite flippant for that comment. I'm not saying that's how it always is. Mm. But within my experience, that's, that's normally how it goes. And I think to get a real developed department, I think the manager, um, I've, I've got careful not to miss my words here, but the manager can't bring in staff like that to try and say, right, you go and get on and just rub the faces together and there's no kind of relationship that's going to happen. I think what you need is the club to build a department, sports science and medicine department, that can work well, leave a, uh, keep a legacy working at the club and make sure that you, you've got a department that's going to be there for the future as opposed to be changed every 12 to 18 months or whatever the changes in manager for the championship these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's going to be no consistency. There's going to be no structure unless things are, are kept as they are. Um, it, it's pretty much like Alex Ferguson said in his book. You know, if you keep on changing the manager at the club, then the power's going to go to the dressing room. Mm-hmm. So if this is the thing. You've got to make sure that you're keeping the power where it needs to be. And within sports science and medical department, there has to be um, big relationships within there to make sure that the department can work at best. Well, they only got rid of the manager once, or the manager retired, and that's happened already, hasn't it? <laughs> that's another story. But I mean, like you say, with, with like just recently the Spurs, uh, Spurs and West Brom yeah. getting rid of their managers. I mean, I don't think um, I think the West Brom situation is pretty slightly different. Maybe the Tottenham is as well because they've got West Brom have got kind of a a steady backroom staff, I and mean, I think only one went um, yeah. when Pepe Mel got the boot, but. It, it can't happen like that. It can't be, right, one six months, there's a, a team of 11, and then next six months, it's a completely new team because the manager's got the boot and everyone's, you know, jumped ship as well. How How is that ever going to work? I've, I've no idea, mate. I really don't know. I mean, it's, people keep on giving the old cliche of that's football. <laughs> no, that's, it shouldn't be bloody football, should it? It's an excuse to make sure that this can still happen. It's not a reason to say that it shouldn't, it shouldn't keep on happening. Um, I think football's uh, rife with excuses um, as opposed to reasons why um, we can do things. Um, and if you look at uh, a department of egos which are forever changing, new people come in, new people go in, uh, people not been in jobs for longer than a season. Everyone's going to have a different kind of ideology and a different um, kind of insight as to what they think should happen at the club. How can players keep on responding to different people coming in who've got different ideas and different ways of work? Mm. And more importantly, there's uh, there's um, a study um, that's in process or about to be published by uh, again Jan Ekstrand on injury occurrence through managers throughout the seasons. Mm. Wherever a manager's been, they've traced his um, his background of where he, what club he's been and the injury occurrence that he's had. 
and they found that it's not necessarily the club that's attributed to high injury risk. It's wherever the manager goes and is out of the training, his philosophy, how long he keeps him on the training pitch for, what formations he uses, blah, blah, blah. And that's actually been attributed to injury risk. So, you know, as that famous saying goes that he uses, coaches are responsible for the injuries at, uh, at football clubs. And you can take that how you will. Yeah. Um, but, you know, very, very controversial. But, you know, the results don't lie. So I know you went on the, um, his presentation. When did, he, when did he say that would be published? You know? I've no idea. He spoke at um, Leicester, mm. uh, Leicester City put on a, um, a conference um, probably about uh, six six to eight weeks ago, something like that, maybe, I think it was. And um, He's obviously um, quite close with Paul Balsam, who oversees the sports science down there at Leicester. Mm. Um, and yeah, he's... He kind of announced it, but you know, all the questions were flying about saying who's, who's manager A, who's manager B, yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, who's this, who's that. Uh, nothing's been done in, in the English leagues, uh, as, I'm, as I'm aware, but you know, within UEFA, they're, they're a little bit more ahead mm. uh, than what we are, and things like that are going to be going to be coming probably a little bit more prevalent than what we're, what we're thinking at the minute. So. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see. It'll be very interesting to start giving names out as well. Yeah, too, right. No, no, they'll come out somewhere, somehow. <laughs> but no, that's been, that's been really interesting. Um, very interesting. So thanks very much for that. But no you've got um, you've got a little, uh, a little, a weekend workshop coming up. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, did, you did one last year, obviously. I know you did one last year, but you've, yeah. you're going to do it again. Do you want to have a little chat about that? We know what it's about, where it is and... Yeah, I'll put a little advert out for that then. Yeah, go for it. Fill your boots. Is, is, um, last year, we put on a workshop called Season in a Day, and it was just targeted for, for anyone, really, who was aspiring to work within professional football, or who already do, um, but just want to gain a little bit more insight. So, you know, football coaches, uh, physios, sports scientists, S&C, um, students, graduates, and interns. Um I speak with um, a lad called Kurt Boyer, who is the director of a company called Creating Athletes. Um, and what Creating Athletes do is they work in the, the Lawn Tennis Association and they are accredited as the only uh, learning company to tennis coaches to get accredited points for their strength conditioning modules. Right. So we understand that the FA won't allow a small company like creating athletes to come in and work within football. So we just feel that there needs to be a little bit more education as to what happens within professional football in an applied setting, whether that being how to monitor your training sessions from RPE to heart rates to GPS, to how to adequately get your strength conditioning working um, from putting on individual programs or to sending players away through their own work in the gym if you, if you haven't got the the resources or personnel to, to describe that. Mm-hmm. So that's happening down in uh, Cambridge. Um, I'm not quite sure the name of the venue. It's Hills Road or Hills Top Tennis Club. Um, and that's on the 7th and 8th of June. Um, if anyone wants to um, get on that course or just look at a bit more information, you'll find that on the Creating Athletes web, uh, website. Um, and just go on creating athletes and just click on uh, courses or workshops and I'm just on there. So it's two days this year, isn't it, rather than one? Is that right? Yeah, the feedback we got from last year was just, you know, we put on so much information 
um, they just thought we could probably expand that over two days and just make it a little bit more interactive with the delegates as opposed to bash, 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 there's all your information. So we're doing it over two days this year and hopefully that'll be um, a little bit more kind of digestible for everyone. Uh, and we can also incorporate a lot more practical within that as well. Mm. That sounds really good. So what, what dates, what dates that? Is it start of June? It's the 7th and 8th of June. It's a Saturday and Sunday. Um, and like I say, if you go on creatingathletes.com um, and just look on season and a weekend, it's not season and a day, obviously, it's only two days now. It's a weekend workshop this year. Mm. That sounds good, mate. So if anyone, I mean, I know you're new to Twitter, but already putting some good quality, good quality info out there. Um, if anyone wants to get you on Twitter, what, what's your uh, Twitter name? Do you know? It's quite simply, mate, at Ross Burberry. All one word. Um, you won't get much uh, from me other than papers and information and, and decent articles on Twitter. That's that's all. I'm no, about. no dancing cats are all. No, nothing like that. I'm afraid. Or is it Candy Crush or whatever? Right. As well. I'm not really into the kind of social media side, so I just yeah. I put a little bit of information on there that I think is worthwhile of yeah. people reading, and uh, hopefully it'll just inspire other people as it does me. That's good, mate. So. I'll round it up and we've done like just over 40 minutes, but um, that's perfect. But just to um, recap on what I said at the start, if anyone does obviously listen to it and think it's decent, just get the message out there. Because, um, I mean, I'm slightly biased, but I think it's decent. <laughs> I think it's good stuff from, from good people. So if we can get it out there, uh, as many people as possible, that'd be great. But just to say thanks again. Um, and I'd like, it'd be good to get you back on in the future. Uh, and obviously Definitely. we'll we'll keep in touch, but uh, it'd be great to get you back on and have another chat, see how things have developed. Been more than happy to, Rob. All right, mate. Well, thanks very much. Brilliant. Thanks for your All time, right. mate. See you, pal. Bye, bye. Cheers. Bye, bye. bye.